0: Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the content lead for bio and health at A16Z. I'm happy to share that we'll be launching a new season of BioEats World soon, but in the meantime, we have a special summer research episode for you. That's because Dr. Suchi Saria of Bayesian Health, an A16Z portfolio company, and her colleagues have a really exciting trio of papers out soon in Nature Medicine. Together, these papers describe Bayesian's deployment of their clinical platform, TRUES, in a hospital environment. That's spelled T-R-E-W-S, and it stands for Targeted Real-Time Early Warning System. In this episode, we talk in more detail about each of the papers. There are two prospective studies focused on clinician adoption and patient outcomes, and one semi-structured interview study focused on clinical attitudes toward adoption of Bayesian's platform. First, we get into detail about the design and results of the prospective studies. Then we talk about trues in context with other clinical decision support tools. Finally, we talk about clinicians' attitudes toward adoption, which Dr. Suchi Saria and colleagues investigated in one of the papers. You'll hear comments from Suji Saria, PhD, the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health, as well as the director of the machine learning, AI, and healthcare lab at Johns Hopkins University. You'll also hear from Neri Cohen, MD, PhD, a cardiothoracic surgeon, research scientist, and physician executive for more than 20 years, as well as a collaborator with Bayesian Health. Finally, you'll hear from Vanita Agrawala, MD, PhD, a practicing physician and general partner at A16C. Let's get started. Suchi Neri Benita, welcome to this special research episode of BioEats World. Bayesian has three exciting papers coming out this week focused on a pilot that deployed Bayesian's AI platform to multiple hospitals targeting early sepsis detection. So let's start with this. Why sepsis? So
1: sepsis is the leading cause of mortality in hospitals and it's well understood that detecting sepsis early and treating it at a timely way is one of the most promising ways to improve sepsis outcomes. I also lost my nephew to sepsis. In his case, he wasn't detected until he was already in septic shock, where it's much harder to resuscitate a patient. So it's just an example of an area where there's so much opportunity to be had from better use of the data that already exists, synthesizing that data and making it very easy for, to be able to identify
2: something that is commonly missed. You know, sepsis is a very, very common clinical condition. It's pretty much the first clinical scenario that most clinicians in training ever learn how to react to. It's, it's one that all types of clinicians need to know how to react to. Sepsis is defined essentially as a clinical scenario in which the body's response to an infection starts to injure the body, starts to create evidence of physiologic instability and and end-organ damage. That can happen in so many different settings. It can happen to a woman after she delivers birth. It can happen to an elderly person who's had a line in them for a long time. It can happen to a newborn who doesn't yet have a developed immune system. In every setting, in every kind of patient, post-surgically, in such a large number of clinical scenarios, sepsis is an outcome that as a system, we believe, we like to believe, we are exceptionally well trained to detect and respond to because it can be treated and so as a result it's just it's i can't think of a more important clinical indication to get better at managing you know and that's why it's so exciting that that there's still more room for improvement with technology of the kind that we're talking about today
3: the only thing i would add is there are very few things left in clinical medicine where there's still an expected mortality of 30% from a clinical condition that is addressable, preventable, and manageable. And as Benita said, the the problem here is identifying the problem before it progresses to the point where the body is making choices of what am I going to save and what am I going to sacrifice and creating detrimental responses as a result. So the goal here is early detection before you get to the point where you're in a clinical scenario where you can't recover from it.
0: So you have three studies coming out, one of which is semi-structured interviews on clinicians' attitudes toward adoption, and two of which are perspective focused on clinical adoption and patient outcomes. So let's talk about the two perspective studies. Could you walk us through the high level of each study and some of the key findings from each?
1: Yeah. So the first study focused on measuring the system characteristics using data from the real world in terms of accuracy, lead time, sensitivity, specificity, adoption, and factors impacting physician's decision to engage and what it meant in terms of ability to move their lead time. So what we found was in the the data at 82% sensitivity, one in three alerts that were evaluated were physician confirmed to be septic, which is very important because common systems struggle with false alerting, so physicians don't adopt it. We also found 5.7 hours earlier detection compared to when physicians first prescribed antibiotics on the patients who had otherwise died of sepsis. So in other words, in a patient population where there's real opportunity for impact, very significant lead time. The next thing we did was we evaluated when the tool was deployed prospectively, what was the physician adoption rates and what factors impacted adoption. And so what we found through the study period is 89% of the times, when trues flagged a patient, providers came in and engaged. That means they went in, they clicked on the tool, they looked at the data and they entered an evaluation, whether they agreed or disagreed. And then the study design basically showed that uh, for patients on whom providers engaged with the tool versus they didn't, there was a 1.85 hour reduction in time to antibiotics. That means patients were getting these treatments earlier. Now, the next natural question then is, well, we had lead time, we saw saw movement in lead time, did that then impact outcomes? And so again, the study design was pragmatic in nature. What we did was we compared when providers engaged with the tool and confirmed sepsis within three hours of True's alerting versus they didn't, we saw a nearly 19% reduction in mortality. And Essentially, to be able to observe that, we had to control for patient acuity, patient comorbidities, environmental factors, and all of that is necessary to make sure that basically the reason they're seeing that benefit is not because they're choosing to engage with, you know, simpler, easier patients first and more complicated patients later and
2: so on and so forth. Your study design is an intriguing one because you pick pick the patients for whom the provider Acted quickly within three hours, and then you compare it to the patients still flagged by the tool for whom the physician waited? And what if there were a thousand other reasons that they waited? Because the patient was complicated, or the patient had five things going on, or the patient patient had simultaneous heart failure. It's like, how do you know that the rapid decision taken in your study set was actually attributable? To the tool?
1: Yeah, and I think that's an extremely good question, Vanita. So, the very honest reality is we don't know. The statistical version of that is we, in the study, we controlled for comorbidities, patient presentation, acuity in a very thorough and detailed way in order to
2: make the patients in the two arms similar. Right, so essentially you controlled for as many other variables as you possibly could, even though you chose to hone in on this notion of speed to response after the alert. And you set up in a way your own internally controlled system where a lot of other variables were the same about those patients within the same hospital, within the same setting, within the same, sometimes probably the same physician who got an alert and in some cases responded very swiftly. And in other cases there was a lag and therefore we're asked to believe as readers that, hey, controlled for a lot of different variables, that difference in treatment time may correspond to the mortality benefit that you observe, which is is compelling. There are a lot of other ways that the study could have been set up. And I know you're running other types of studies and have run other types of studies in the past. You can do retrospective studies versus prospective studies. You can do multi-site studies where in some sites, patients on, some sites, it's just completely off. But this was a really creative study design where you really got to hone in on the time to alert response and look for how that might have affected patient outcomes and saw some pretty pretty compelling data. And I, I'll just add in PubMed, if you search for sepsis alert, you'll get like a thousand papers. And most of them, you know, pursuant to the constraints that Suchi you described earlier, you know, there's only so many patients you can enroll prospectively. It's a really hard kind of setting in which to try to influence acute response and so on, but most of them are really small. People yeah. have tried their best because they know this is an important area, but most studies, there you know, are studies out there with hundreds, you know, sometimes a few thousand patients, and in this study, what I found particularly interesting and important from the perspective of controlling variables is that you know, almost 600,000 patients were monitored, so it's just a really, really big, big cohort.
0: So given this messiness, when do you know the effect is big enough to matter? When does it get you excited? And how does that change for conditions that might be less time-sensitive than sepsis?
2: Maybe I could take this one as an external reader. You know, I think you never know exactly when, what is good enough. As a physician, you want to think that kind of, you know, every life saved is, is hugely important and valuable. And, you know, how could you not do something that might help you achieve that? There are a lot of effect sizes in medicine that are pretty marginal. Guidelines do get made on what might seem like small advances or improvements in quality of life and length of life. These are pretty compelling in my view. You know, multiple percentage points change in the likelihood that a patient dies is pretty significant for a condition that, as we talked about earlier, is is so common. What is enough to matter is modulated by how much do you need to get that juice? And in this case, the great finding is that it's not that much squeeze. It's background application, it's passive, the alerting is tolerable, in fact, viewed positively. And so all of that kind of combines to say at least it's, you didn't have to kind of completely overhaul your workflow or potentially put other patients at risk or things like that in order to achieve these clinical improvements.
3: Yeah, P- put in a different context as a cancer physician. We see paradigm changes that are remarkable in the way we deliver anti-neoplastic therapy, cancer therapy, to prolong life by several months as remarkably significant. Here we're talking about an impact factor of a reduction in mortality of real mortality of people surviving of 20%. You know, it's it's a huge difference in the construct of medicine in general. This is a big signal.
0: I would love to get more into technology. You've talked before about how Trues uses neither static logic nor deep learning because neither of those models is a particularly good fit for a clinical setting. So how did you make the decision to do something different? And can you talk more about what you do use to build this model?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me step back and give a little bit of history When we first started working in this problem area, almost 2013, 2014, I'm embarrassed to say how long ago was that? We called, it was just a simple model and we called it trues because clinicians are used to early warning systems like news and news. And the idea was these early warning systems were often narrow, not very sensitive, not specific, often not tailored. And patient presentation really varies by the type of subpopulation you belong to. So we really needed systems that were targeted. The other thing we needed was systems that were real time. We're reading and crunching this data in real time to make these assessments in a timely way. So Trues was our starting point for being able to do that. Over the course of this time, as we learned, what we realized was we needed to adapt the system to really deal with the messiness of the data. You may collect many more creatinine measurements in a patient who may have CKD versus far fewer on somebody on whom you're not worried about kidney malfunction. So this level of diversity in both the kinds of data that are collected, the frequency at which they're collected, varies by setting, varies by provider practice patterns across sites. So we really needed systems that went from this simple, single monolithic models that are often very rigid to systems that adapt and adapt to the complexity of the patient population, the diversity of the patient population, adapt to the workflows in these sites that we're deploying at, adapt to the diversity of like the units. And for me as a scientist, really exciting to see how it was coming to life and being put to test in the real world.
0: Yeah. I would love to hear Neri and Vanita, you're both clinicians. What does the status quo look like? I mean, you're, you're getting all of this different data. Patient records might not be complete. There might be too much information. So what does it look
2: like as a clinician on the ground I'll offer a view of current clinical decision support. So if you go into any hospital today, especially younger trainees and younger physicians will all have an app on their phone called MDCalc. And that is one of the most commonly used clinical decision support tools for common frequent decisions like this, aka deciding whether the patient in front of you has sepsis. More experienced clinicians will have those kind of Heuristics seared into their memory <laughs> and you know can never forget. And I, I mentioned that just because that is truly how every clinician, every medical student is now being trained. There are clinical decision support tools that exist to find sepsis because finding sepsis as we talked about earlier is so very important, but it's interesting to look for a second at what those tools look like. So what do those tools ask? Those tools ask to describe about the patient in front of you, Four major variables, that's their temperature, their heart rate, their respiratory rate, and their white blood cell count. And if any of those four are above a certain threshold, you get a point. And if you get two points, you get to qualify as uh, meeting the criteria for SIRS, and SIRS becomes sepsis, so there's some subjectivity to it as well in terms of determining whether or not a patient has sepsis and meets the criteria to go ahead and initiate sepsis treatment but like let's just pause to think about that for a second there's one subjective question in there whether or not you suspect an infection and then all the other four variables have pretty arbitrary cutoffs and so you can imagine that even though this is a simplified clinical decision support you know system that is now widely used and has been reasonably effective there's a lot of good intuition for, well, geez, you know, if you had a lot more data points and you had the ability to look at variables in a continuous fashion, and you have the ability to recalculate, you know, more continuously,
3: it could be better. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. There's such a huge target and ability to improve here. The other thing is that this requires the clinician to go search for the data, input it into something to get it. Uh, I've been doing this for over two decades, and, and there's this, always this sense of the, the clinician gestalt, the blink, the ability to look at a problem and immediately realize something isn't right. That's the first step. And these tools currently are so rigid, they're just lists of categories. So what is so important about the Bayesian platform is that the data is collected from lots and lots of points presented to the clinician And the clinician is allowed to evaluate whether those data points are important in this decision and either agree or disagree with the alert.
0: So I would love to talk more about the user experience of this because a big part of getting clinicians to actually use this, they're busy, they're running around all day. Some of them are new. You want them to have the information they need at their fingertips and to have it be intuitive to use. And from reading your papers, it, it's clear that you've put a lot of thought into that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Theoretically, we know AI can detect things early, but where people have struggled is getting any kind of CDS tool and AI tools to get frontline adoption. And so part of that is how it's delivered within workflows so that it's easy to use. A second part of that is how do we make it so that it's something that it, there's opportunity to collaborate as opposed to the software is telling you what to do. It's also providing additional context to help interpret those data points. And the tool then queries, for instance, and for nurses, they're being queried to then provide their clinical input because they're at the bedside, they can see the patient, they're providing clinical input on what they're observing. Uh, And this is, for instance, is the patient at risk for, uh, uh, do they feel there's worsening, signs of worsening infection? Do they feel there are signs of altered mental status? And all of that then gets incorporated to update the model, which then gets surfaced to the physician who sees all of the data in context and they can decide to agree, disagree, which then allows them to treat. So this kind of a collaboration model where they don't feel like there's loss of autonomy, but the ability to partner was uh, one key crucial component.
3: The power here is that this is patient-centric, team-based care.
0: Yeah, so what are some of the risks, what are you worried about with an alerting system like this?
2: I worry about laziness, right? A big bedrock of the of the healthcare system is that doctors care. And part of the way we know doctors care is that it's hard to get the data you need right. and you have to do the work to get it all out, write it down, punch it into whatever calculator you want. Like it's a weird thing, but part of the reason we know our healthcare system sort of works is almost that we make doctors' work hard. And so you know that the only way they can function in our system is to be at the grind, getting the data, monitoring patients as best as they possibly can, scribbling it into those note cards we talked about. And so I, you know, one thing that I do think could be a risk is that if, if physicians stop using their own heuristics or their own monitoring or their own fear-driven work ethic, that you know I don't want to miss something. If you take that away or even blunt it, I think that's, that could potentially be a risk. It doesn't seem like we had evidence of that in these studies, but that's hypothetically something that, that I would worry about. It might be
0: worth noting that that was one of the results from the semi-structured interview study as well, is that clinicians were, were afraid of that. They were afraid that they were going to lose their, their touch. Diagnostic ability. Yeah. The ability to think, but then they simultaneously said, but the
1: thing is, this doesn't take my power away. I'm still in the driver's seat. It gives me information to make the decision. We monitor performance, adoption, engagement, and and we use that to drive the teaching in an ongoing way. So for instance, if we see certain units in which there is over-reliance, we're actually using that data as a teaching tool to identify cases where they may be over-treating and making people aware, reminding them to continuously engage with the tool as intended, as opposed to just taking it for granted that it is correct all the time. To me, a second risk I see is inertia, like lack of willingness to change, lack of willingness to adopt ideas. I think our studies seem to suggest that the way the tool is designed, providers see it as an assist and an aid. And so there isn't a loss of power, a loss of autonomy. So they're more willing to adopt it. But all said and done, any new change requires willingness to embrace new ideas and I see that as potentially a concern.
0: And one of your findings in one of the studies was a relatively high participation rate by clinicians. So I'm interested to hear about how you gained that clinician trust. Maybe you can also talk about how you measured that clinician trust in the the study, but how you gained it and how you did that, that workflow assessment on the clinical side.
1: Yeah, so the way we measured in the papers, we report on adoption. So the way that was measured was basically historically when people have deployed CDS tools, one way in which people have done this is they basically have an automated pop-up. And when that automated pop-up shows in the physician's workflow, they can't do anything else in the MR They kind of have to stop. They have to react to the pop-up and make the pop-up go away. And when that's done, they're able to continue doing what they're doing. Coming from the point of view of a designer, a solution designer, this kind of a construct is so broken in so many ways because the physician could be there addressing a patient who's in arrest, but instead of responding to that, suddenly they're responding to a silly pop-up, which is mostly serving as a distraction and perhaps even harming the patient in terms of delaying the care for other things that are more important. So the way we designed it was it's the insights embedded in a variety of places in the MR in places where they would have probably like naturally seen it within workflow. And the benefit of doing that is they're already spending a lot of time in these screens. When this flag shows up, it naturally calls for attention and they can triage whether it's important enough for them to break attention, look at it, click and engage. And when they engage, effectively it opens up in the patient's chart, it's providing the relevant information, it's providing the workflow, and adoption is measured as for a patient who was flagged, uh, the provider came in, they clicked, they opened, and they entered an evaluation. And that could be they agree or they disagree. And what we found over time was basically um, in the beginning when we were doing this, there was strong suspicion that by using this design, it's too passive. Providers aren't gonna listen. They're not gonna agree. You're mostly gonna get ignored. But what was it like very exciting for me to study, see in the study was the fact that despite this design, which is mostly passive in nature, we were able to get very, very high engagement and adoption. And a big part of that is the frontline providers have to see value. If they don't see value, they're not gonna engage. But when you start to see value and it's so easy, it's easy to go in and engage.
3: One thing I'm going to continue on on that, Suchi, is we see that as clinicians use the tool, the more times they interact with the tool, the more times they keep using it. So the people that have one alert or two alerts, they're sort of in the 20 or 30%. When they see five alerts, they're already in the 50%. By the time they see seven alerts, they're over 90% adoption. So once they've seen it and they've tried it and they see the value, it becomes a power function. They use it over and over again.
1: Since this study, as we've gone at other sites and deployed, this has been a really fun thing to discover. We've even, you know, there have been sites where we've deployed where, you know, we were told our providers aren't going to adopt it. Like we've struggled with implementing past systems where our providers didn't adopt. And some of the data nary sharing is an example of what we've been able to see in a short period of time, where as providers start to gain experience, when we kind of just plot like the number of exposures they have with their desire and willingness to keep coming back, it's very strongly correlated, which is exactly what we wanna see. We're creating value and that value is bringing them
0: back. So what other conditions can technology like this be applied to?
3: Excellent question, Olivia. And I'm so happy that you asked it. These papers demonstrate the incredible power of the Bayesian platform to affect meaningful change when focusing on sepsis, which which is what we've been talking about this entire podcast. What excites me is that platforms like Bayesian that promote intelligent care augmentation are able to address and have similar effects to bring about meaningful improvements to multiple stakeholders on burning critical issues in healthcare right now. Elements like clinical deterioration, pressure injury, transitions in care, recovery at home, palliative care are all current and real challenges where these kinds of platforms can affect meaningful change and really help everyone. And looking to the near-term future, extension to facilitate proactive virtual care, what we're sort of calling the journey to proactive wellness instead of reactive sick care, anywhere is definitely a perfect target to engage these kinds of platforms right from the outset.
0: Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the bio and health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.